Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. As we continue our summer worship series on unrealistic expectations and where they came from, we're going today tackle the idea that clergy are holier than laypersons. Yeah, none of you seem to be believing that. I love that. That's great. Yes, there is a concept, and it's found its way through the course of time and, and made its way into the church and has been much more substantiated in other denominations than the United Methodist Church. But where did it come from? What is this concept, and how did it come to be? In the United Methodist Church, people fall into two designations, and it's not member and not member. It's clergy and laity. And it's not a hierarchical designation. It's not that clergy are over laity. It's the fact that there are some that are called to specific roles within the church and tasked with using a special authority in order to do that. Those are your clergy persons. And in the United Methodist Church, this would be specifically ordained elders, ordained deacons, and licensed local pastors. Those are the people that have that designation of clergy. Then there are laity. If you are not an ordained elder, an ordained deacon, or a licensed local pastor, you are a layperson. You are laity. And you well outnumber those of us who would call ourselves clergy. And that's because you are much more effective sometimes at what you do than us. If we were all clergy, I guarantee you the effectiveness of ministry would go way down. Because one of the things that we notice is that clergy think and speak and act in a specific way. And it's complemented by the way that laity speak and think and act. And together, we look more like the body of Christ than if we were all, <coughs> all clergy or all laity. And so we are called to be in ministry together. Well, one of the things that happens is that over time, there was translations of the Old Testament where this concept was originally um, discussed. And then what ends up happening is that human beings, this will shock you, actually prefer not to read all of the Old Testament. They prefer to have somebody kind of summarize it for them or kind of break it down into more manageable pieces. And when people summarize and paraphrase for us, what they do sometimes is make mistakes. Sometimes they misconstrue and they make errors. And in this case, they kind of conflated something that was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was something called purity code and purity laws. And it was about ritual purity, not morality, ritual purity. And there were three areas of that. One was clean. Clean is your default, your neutral zone, clean. Then outside of clean is unclean. So if you were to step out of a cleanliness zone and head this way, you were into unclean. And then on the other side, because the communion table is over here, we're going to call this holy. And so you had clean, holy, and unclean. And they were designations for where people were and in what state they found themselves in ritual purity, not morality. It's not about good versus evil. It's about whether you're clean or you're unclean. And for some people, sometimes whether you were holy, but not holy as in you are perfect, you are infallible, or you are not flawed, or you have figured out this Christian thing and everybody should just look at you because you got it down pat. 
Instead, it was a place in which you were in close proximity and contact with God. And that's not always a fun thing, but that was what holy designated. And so in the scriptures, it was telling these people, especially the religion of the ancient Israelites that then became the religion of the Jews, was that there were places where they needed to pay attention to boundaries because they were called, according to the covenant of Mount Sinai, to be a holy people, separate and other. And they displayed this outwardly. They showed that they were not like everyone else in the land of Canaan or in the Middle East by the way they lived their lives, the way they dressed, the way they ate, the way they conducted their business and what days they didn't conduct business. Outwardly, you would be able to tell that they were different because they were a people of God. And so some of the things that would make them transgress these boundaries here were not evil things at all. In fact, one of the things that consistently makes people unclean in the scriptures is when they come into contact with blood. Blood is a good and right and joyful thing, especially when it's on the inside. Most people don't want to con come into contact with blood when it's on the outside because it's a life force, and the Bible recognizes. And so when blood was on the outside, sometimes that was because something had gone wrong. Someone had been hurt and injured. Somebody was in pain and suffering. Someone was dying. Those were things that were not good and joyful, but instead those were realities of life, and the Bible recognizes. So if you, as a clean default person, came into contact, maybe somebody was injured, maybe you were actually fulfilling what Jesus was going to preach about the Good Samaritan, and you decided to stop and help somebody who had been beaten up, you will become unclean ritually when you touch them because they are bleeding and they are hurt. Have you done something wrong and sinful because you've helped somebody who's bleeding? No. No. No, you have not. And even though modern Christians would use gloves before they did that, it doesn't change the fact that you have kind of transgressed a boundary. And the Bible recognized that. And Jesus was trying to tell people, it's a good thing for you to become unclean to help the person who's injured. That's what the Samaritan did. It's okay. It's so okay that the Bible in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy will actually tell you how to reset and get clean again. It's okay. You can take a mikvah, there's a little prayer ritual that you can do, and you can come back in the cleanliness, no harm, no foul. The Bible also recognized that some people were going to become unclean simply by doing what they were supposed to do, and that is mostly for women. Women, during various parts of our lives, will experience blood where blood doesn't normally go, especially if you give birth, which was exactly what women were commanded to do, be fruitful and multiply. So in doing this, they too would transgress this boundary. Does that mean that you're evil because you give birth to a child? No, of course not. You're doing exactly what you were supposed to do according to the religion of the ancient Israelites. And so there was a, a waiting time, a period of time, where you didn't have to worry about ritual purity. They gave you a grace period. And then you needed to go ahead and take your mikvah, your ritual clean, cleansing bath, and get back into clean. And it did this for women throughout their lives as long as they were fertile. It did this when they had children. It gave you these opportunities to say, you just need to recognize that you're in an unclean category right now. It doesn't make you bad or a sinner. It doesn't mean that we should all make fun of you or kick you out and shun you. Instead, it just recognized mostly that there was one place that you had to be very careful. Clean is our neutral central area because the two polar ends of unclean and holy are not supposed to come into contact. The only time that blood comes into contact with holy is when it comes from an offering that has been consecrated and made holy. For instance, if you had done something wrong and you were bringing in 
the first male lamb from your fold without blemish. When you brought it in and you presented it to the priest for sacrifice, the priest would lay hands on it and that lamb would then become holy and worthy of being sacrificed. And then the priest would take that lamb and make the offering on your behalf. Because while you were clean and then brought in the animal that has now become holy, it takes the priest in a state of holiness to make the offering. You don't want to bring in anything unclean and have it in contact with holy. In the scripture, that looks like a nuclear explosion. And that's very bad. And so we try to keep those things apart. So this priesthood, they're in a state of holiness. And the scriptures actually tell Aaron and his descendants how to do that. They have special vestments. They put on these blessed, sacralized vestments, and at that moment, they go from clean to holy. They do their service in the Holy of Holies and in the temple and the tabernacle, and when they are done, they, can't, they take off their blessed, holy sacrament, uh, sacraments and their, uh, their gowns, and then they are clean again, recognizing that you know the next week, if there's a death in the family and you have to attend to that, because you've now touched something dead, you're now in a state of uncleanliness. And the scriptures recognize that. That's why there's more than one priest. So that if something should happen, somebody's sick, someone's in a state of uncleanliness, you have backup to come and do this. And so the Bible was built around this concept of purity, not morality when it came to holiness. It wasn't that there weren't holy priests making mistakes and sinning. In fact, I could do an entire sermon series on that in the scriptures. That would be awkward for me. Look how much my people mess up. But... It is definitely there. You have Aaron, who's the first high priest, and the first thing he does when Moses turns his back is make a, a gilded golden calf. And God says, I'm just going to smite all y'all right now. That's how bad he messes up. His sons mess up. Then you get the high priest Eli. Eli messes up. His kids mess up. It just keeps going. I mean, and right now we're only in like Exodus, and we're already messing up. So it happens. They're holy because of the work that they're doing. They're not holy because they're perfect. They're not holy because they're blameless. And as Hebrews pointed out, they're certainly not holy because uh, they are holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I have yet to meet a clergy person that fulfills all those categories. And if they did, the rest of us at clergy session in the Virginia Annual Conference would be like, oh, yeah? That's a first. Instead, in order for them to do that, they pretty much have to be in ministry to themselves and never encounter people. Because the reality is that we are just like everybody else. We sin, we have bad thoughts, we have stressors and we lash out and we have our failures and our faults. And yet the difference is that we have a role in the church, not a moral high ground, we have a role. Just like you have a role in the church. It doesn't make you less of a moral person because you sit in the pew and I stand in the pulpit. Instead, it's a recognition of the fact that when we are in this place, I am in my holy role. I am in this position, indicated by my vestments, that this is my job. At my last church, we robed for all of our worship services. And there was an especially amorous older gentleman who liked to greet every Sunday. And he always wanted a hug and a kiss. And then he wanted another hug and a kiss and all this kind of stuff. And so finally I had to say to him, look, when I see you in the morning and you greet me initially, it's fine because he was from uh, a tradition where you did the kisses on the cheek. Okay, fine. So we would kiss on the cheek and he'd get a little hug. And then I'm not going to keep doing this every time I see you in the building. I said, once I put on my robes, I'm in my priestly role and I'm not going to be doing this anymore. 
And he got it. It made sense. Okay, she's no longer in my pastor role. Now she's in my priestly role, and I'm going to let her do her priestly things. And then sometimes he would wait around for me to take off my priestly vestments. And I'd be like... So, you know, you have, to, you have to set boundaries, right? There are boundaries here. And we can make the boundaries work for us, but we can also use the boundaries to hurt people. And that is the tragedy of this concept that clergy are holier as in a morality, not a purity sense. The idea that we are holier. If we were holier, then we would just have ministry among clergy. And I've done clergy groups before. That is more like purgatory than anything else I can think of. Because everybody thinks they're right. And everybody thinks they have the way. And I was like, I thought Jesus is the way. And the problem is that we sometimes can get conflated in our understanding of who we are as clergy. You know, one of the great things about being female clergy is I never get up in the morning and think I'm Jesus. You don't generally come here in the morning and think I'm Jesus. You know, that's one of the nice things. You know, people don't look at me and go, wow, she's really Jesus-y today. That doesn't happen. And so there's a level of humility implicit in who I am. But then it doesn't mean that I don't have to check my ego consistently too. Yes, I'm educated. Yes, I have sacramental authority. Yes, there is an apostolic genealogy to my ordination that I can physically trace. I mean, there are some wonderful things about being clergy. But the truth is that without laity, my clergydom means nothing. I need you, just like the church has deemed that laity and clergy need one another, that we are called to be in ministry together. And when we allow ourselves to become convinced that there are people who are better than us, we are actually perpetuating a false gospel. Because what I'm supposed to be doing is modeling exactly what to do when any of us mess up. You'll notice when the... Thank you, Christina, for helping me model this this morning. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. That was a redemptive moment. Because, yeah, we want the slides to work for you, obviously. They didn't quite work this morning. And I realized that when I looked up there and I was like, are there words? Oh, they're words. I am incredibly myopic. I am like the priest Eli who couldn't see anything. And so I'm looking at the screen going, this is not going to work. And so instead of going, Christina is obviously to blame and not me, or instead of saying, pretending like it's not going on, because you know that sometimes some people are like, we're just going to fake it through here, right? But we're not going to fake it. We're going to acknowledge the fact that, you know what, that didn't work, and we'll have to go back to the analog hymnals for a day, and we'll work on it next week. And if next week we don't get it, feel free to throw things at me. But we're going to work at it. We're going to work at it because the idea is that we have to model it. Last week, I preached you a sermon about forgiveness and the concept of do Christians really have to forgive? And what I tried to drive home is my biblical understanding of the fact that it's not about being right but righteous. It's about the relationship and not being proven that you were unjustly hurt. And that sometimes, for the sake of righteous relationship, we who have been hurt, we who have been wronged and suffered, we are the ones that have to take that first step to say, it is more important to me to be in relationship with you than for you to acknowledge that I am right. And that hurts because our ego is like, no, 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 why are you saying these things? We are saying them because that's what Jesus Christ modeled for us. We are saying them because when Jesus, who had not sinned, who had done nothing wrong, allowed people who had conspired and worked against him to have him murdered on the cross, looked down upon them and said, Father, forgive them. 
He took the first step. He didn't wait around for Easter for people to go, oh my gosh, I think we just massacred the Messiah. He took the first step to let us know. And clergy, that's incumbent upon us to do the same thing. Because just like all of you, I'm human. And when someone hurts me, there is a part of me that wants you to suffer for a little bit. There's a part of me that wants to go, you know what? I will decide when you are sorry enough. I will decide when you have felt uncomfortable enough in worship that I'm going to forgive you. But that would be wrong. That would not be modeling Christ. That would be modeling Sarah. And you haven't come here to worship Sarah. You've come here because Jesus Christ says that all of us, including Sarah, need to be forgiven. We, in the United Methodist tradition, recognize that we are called to model things that are hard. Sometimes they are painful not only to our egos, but to our minds and our hearts. That we are here to do things that we could never do alone, but together we can do them. That's why we are here together. And you'll notice that in brilliance, Jesus never sent more than two clergy out at the same time. <laughs> Jesus knew better. Because you know what happened when they got together? They conspired and had him murdered. That's why. Because the Sadducees, the priesthood at the time of Jesus, they thought that they were untouchable. They thought that they truly were holier than other people. They had different standards for themselves. They believed that they could do what they want, and if he was a threat to them, then they would have him killed. They would take their power, their privilege, their authority, their relationship with Pontius Pilate, and they would abuse it, manipulate it, so that Pontius Pilate would have Jesus killed. That's the problem with thinking that clergy are holier than laypersons. We are not. But we should be some of the first people to model what forgiveness looks like. We should be some of the first people to call out our own sin and confess and work towards finding new ways to live that aren't about sin, but instead about being close to holiness. Holy means of God. That's why it's blazoned across our altar three times. Holy, holy, holy. Hold on, my OCD's kicking in. All right, there we go. Because it's important for us to remember that there are things in the United Methodist Church that are holy. This table is consecrated and holy. That's why you shouldn't come up later and put your coffee cup on it. This, our altar is holy. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. We don't have a mercy seat. Instead, we have our altar, which is very biblical, very book of Exodus. And we have it here, and it's holy. It's not a mantle. It's not a coffee table. So we don't put our coffee on the altar because you should never put anything on the altar that you're not giving to God. That's why we have the ministry of the word that we're giving up for the glory of God. We have our offerings. We light the candles for the dual nature of Jesus Christ. And we have the cross. But we don't put a bunch of other stuff on it unless we're cognitively trying to offer this up in worship. Because one of the things that ends up happening is that if we start to blur the lines between what is holy, then we stop recognizing places where we can encounter God. We stop that. Have you ever noticed how many fledgling congregations will start meeting in a secular place like a school or a community center, but in the end they want their own building? Do you know why they want their own building so bad? They want sacred space. They want a place that isn't profaned when it's not being used in worship. They want a place that is truly holy where they can invoke the deity to dwell and bless. That's what they want. 
And this past week, I had an opportunity to have a really amazing conversation with one of our Catholic siblings who's been part of the growth of the Catholic Church here in Crozet. And they have been just praying for a church, just praying for a church and trying to work for this church. And she looked at me and she goes, I'm sure that that upsets you that we want a church. And I said, why would that upset me? And she's like, well, because we're Catholic. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, that's not a problem for you? I said, yeah, it would really mess up my life if little houses of Jesus sprung up all over Crozet. <laughs> that would really be upsetting to me. Um, you know, if they start ordaining female priests, then we might have a talk. But I'm okay. And I said, I, you know, I, would, I want all people to find a home in Jesus Christ. I want that. You offer something that I cannot offer in my church. Your denomination offers a theology that is not ours. But if somebody can't find grace here, then I want that person to find grace with you. I want that person to find grace. That's why I don't get angry because we're right on top of a Presbyterian church. That's why I don't get angry that there's like half a dozen Baptist churches within throwing distance of here. Because ultimately, it's about people finding a place where they can find holiness. They can encounter God. And I hope that more and more people will find that here because I think that we have got that figured out pretty well. Are we perfect? No. But I think that we have something really wonderful to offer. And one of the things that is so wonderful to offer is what we're going to partake in just a few moments. That we offer people close proximity to holy. You are getting ready to transgress a boundary that would blow the minds of all the people that exist in red all of the Old Testament. You mean I can actually come into the presence of God? I can come in and actually eat the offering? Are you crazy? And I can eat it in the house of God. They would never have fathomed that because once it's been touched by the priesthood, it was off limits for everybody else. It became the food for the priesthood and their families. But here, instead, the reverse happens. Jesus hosts and says that the clergy, we are to serve. And not just to serve our laity, we serve all people. All people. And one of the mindsets that gave rise to the idea that I might be holier than a layperson is the idea that people like power and privilege. People like to know that they are slightly more important than somebody else. But here's the part of the gospel that most people don't like to hear. And that is that Christ is the greatest equalizer the world will ever know. Christ will lower those who put themselves on high and raise up those who are forced low. Christ will equalize everything. And at the communion table, that is true. I might bless it and say the words of institution, but you'll notice that laypersons will outnumber me in serving it. And laypersons will outnumber me in receiving it. That because of this gift, this is the reminder in the Methodist tradition that I am not holier than you. In the traditional liturgy, in the prayer of confession and pardon, there comes a moment at the end where I say to you, hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. And in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And then I have to wait so that you can say, in the name of Jesus Christ, because it takes both of us. It takes all of us. That's a nice little reality check for every clergy person. That, oh yeah, I need to be forgiven too. Oh yeah, this is for me too. 
You know, one of the, there are a lot of glorious things about being clergy. I mean, I can literally be anywhere, and I ha if I have access to the elements, I can perform Holy Communion with one exception, one exception. I cannot do it by myself. I am forbidden to have communion by myself. There must always be one other person with me, and it is for the reason that I just shared with you, so that I can forgive and they can forgive me. That is the requirement, because I cannot do what I do without you. And if I truly do what I do, then you and I will be in right relationship with each other, not me over you. Because some of the best ideas that happen in our church don't come from me. Some of the most wonderful things, the most incredible mission and ministry that happens here are not mine. They are yours. I just get to see it and speak its truth and its glory. As Bishop Lewis would say, I get to be the one to proclaim the glory sighting. But it's not because I did it. It's because I got to witness it in you. And that is what real ministry is about. It's about empowering and equipping and educating just so that all of us can rise to the occasion and do what God has called us to do. That is love people. Tell them the gospel that says that all people can be forgiven, loved, and free. And live that out. It's an incredibly difficult thing to fathom. It's a really hard thing to do. But because we are in this together, we can do it. We can do it. And every now and then, someone will say, you know what, I would really like it if you would come and talk here. I would really like it if you would come and do this. Or I really want you to meet my friend. I want you to do this. And it's like, they're asking me this because I'm clergy. But I hope that when I show up, it's not me that they encounter. I hope it's the God that I serve. Amen. And people say that about you time and time again. They only confess it to me. But they see it in you. But because of the gift of the cross, because Jesus is my high priest as much as yours, because we do serve a God who is not content to let some encounter holiness and not all, Jesus Christ came for us. And if you'll remember, in one of the gospel accounts, it says that at the moment that he died, the moment that his humanity ended, that the curtain was torn in the temple. There, was, there are two curtains. One of the curtains is the outer curtain that keeps people from coming into the Holy of Holies. And then there's another curtain farther in that actually protects even the high priest from the extreme holiness of God. And people have argued over which one was torn down. I like to think it was the outer one. I like to think it was the one that said everybody can get as close as they can. Everybody is welcome here. And that's why every Sunday when I enter into this holy space, I'm so glad that there's not a gate right here. I'm so glad that this is a congregation that will actually celebrate and not just tolerate when we have a baptism and the kids are allowed to play in the font. Because I know that there are some people who would go, well, that just doesn't seem very appropriate to me. There's no solemnity when the kids are playing in the font. But if you had an opportunity in the midst of your crazy life and all your struggles, if you had the opportunity to sink your hands into holy, blessed water and be reminded that Jesus Christ is going to cleanse you and keep you clean and help you to enter into the kingdom to come on the day of resurrection, would you not want to sink your hands in that water? And they do. 
They want to sink their hands in that water. They get all the way up to their elbows. They put it on their faces. They do all kinds of things with that water. And sometimes even I'm going, ooh, they might be pushing some boundaries here. But the truth is that when the church is a place that recognizes that all are welcome to encounter God, then we more accurately reflect what God was commanding in Exodus, what God brought forth in Leviticus, and what Jesus came to perfect in the New Testament. That is who we are, and that is what we offer and what we receive this day. So without further delay, I'm going to invite us to prepare ourselves to praise God with our tithes and our offerings and then to come together and allow Jesus to serve us in the sacrament of Holy Communion. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week. 